somebody broke into our office and they went by our cash. They went into my private files, busted the file open. Um, we don't know exactly what the guy was there for, but a janitor lived in our basement and this guy heard this guy and he rustles around. The guy hears him, he starts down the basement steps and my guy puts two in the 10 ring, kills him. They didn't even charge him. I've been armed for over 40 years uh, because I, I got had some boys come out to the Holiday Inn in Louisville one time to uh, discourage me from helping this employer. And all I had in the room to fight with was an ashtray. So it can be rough. Did you think it was going to be like that when you got into the business? I had a suspicion that there was always this possibility. My first election, it was an SEIU local in Youngstown, and the organizer, they came to the same hotel I was staying at after the election. We'd just beaten them. I took off. I'd go run across an icy parking lot with a projector and a briefcase and a suitcase and go to run to Alliance to hang out with this friend of mine to save my life, you know. But I don't, I think, once again, it was a coincidence that they were there. Do you have many friends who aren't in the business who have these experiences? Who are in my business? No, no, in, in different businesses. No, 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 no. No. Names that you would know that we've worked with, uh, IBM, HBO, ESPN, Dow Jones, the Federal Reserve. Those are employers that have hired us to do projects. And I'm, I've got a, a bunch more, hundreds more. I'm kind of like the oncologist. We go in, we do the cancer treatment, and then we leave and you hope to never see me again. Bill Adams is the Adams of Adams, Nash, Haskell, and Sheridan. It's what's known as a union avoidance firm. For the last 40 years, he's been hired by all kinds of companies to stop unions from forming. He stepped in on a lot of union elections, about 670. He claims to have derailed about four-fifths of them. Statistically, at least, Bill's on the winning side. Private sector union membership has shrunk to a third of what it was in the 1980s, now amounting to just 6% of the American workforce. Do you think that your field is kind of long in the tooth, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. I've been, I've made a great living in a rapidly declining market for 30 years, 40 years. We just keep getting a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, we keep getting a bigger piece of a smaller pie. You got over 10,000 members of the management labor bar. Those people aren't averaging a case per year. This is without. I'm Omar Lakat. In the grand American narrative, there's few entities as simultaneously bland and mythological as the labor union. In practice, most workers' day-to-day interactions with unions might involve minor workplace disputes or an occasional email from the office rep. But then all of a sudden, maybe the screenwriters all go on strike and unions are suddenly on the front page. Today we'll focus on the American Union, 
a thing that, according to polls, more and more people seem to want, and yet is steadily disappearing. In part at the hands of right-wing legislation and conservative interest groups. The result is the very real prospect of the outright elimination of unions from some parts of the country altogether. In effect, you don't really need to go to great lengths to see what a future without unions might look like. In places like Florida, it's already happening. In this episode, we'll look at some of the more surprising things unions can do, including their potential to counteract this country's most ruinous cultural problem, and how that potential fuels the desire of some to see unions disappear. We'll watch an anti-union bill as it's born on the Senate floor, and we'll talk to members of a workforce at risk of losing its power, as well as some of the people actively trying to shut them down. Plus, at a progressive art museum in New York, we'll see what happens when talk of empowerment comes up against the reality of labor. That's all ahead. Technically, if you and a buddy decide to form a union, you can. It takes as few as two people. Local unions can have some power, but they can multiply it by uniting at the regional, national, or even international level. The American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, or AFL-CIO, works on behalf of 60 different large-sized unions. Actors, shipbuilders, athletes, the Federation, though not a union itself, advocates for all of them, and a bunch of others. It's the AFL-CIO's non-union status that allows for some flexibility. While unions have rules and regulations restricting them from contributing to political campaigns, the AFL-CIO is in the clear. Which brings us to the first pretty well-undeniable fact about unions in America. Their work doesn't escape the orbit of politics or culture. Yeah, a lot of the time, the thing standing between the workers and better working conditions is management or shareholders. But sometimes, it's something else entirely. I went back to my hometown in Nemecola and I ran into a woman that I've, I've known for years. She was active in democratic politics when I was still in grade school, back when Abe Lincoln was born. She got to talking, and I asked if she'd made up her mind who she was supporting, and she said, oh, I'm voting for Hillary. There's no way that I'd ever vote for Obama. I said, why is that? She said, well, he's Muslim. And I said, well, actually, he's Christian, just like you and I, but so what if he's Muslim? Then she shook her head and said, well, I just don't trust him. I said, why is that? And she drops her voice a bit. And she says, because he's black. While researching unions for this episode, our staff came across a pretty bizarre claim in an academic paper. It suggested that unions might be able to do far more than get better wages. That maybe they could counteract racial bias. Like I told you, pretty bizarre. 
The study hinged on the 2008 election, when the AFL-CIO ran a kind of anti-racism campaign. Richard Trumka, at the time the AFL-CIO's Treasury Secretary, became the spokesperson for this initiative. And I said, look around this town. Our kids are moving away because there's no future here. And here's a man, Barack Obama, who's going to fight for people like us. And you want to tell me that you won't vote for him because of the color of his skin? Are you out of your ever-loving mind? We can't tap dance around the fact that there's a lot of folks out there just like that woman. And a lot of them are good union people. They just can't get past the idea that there's something wrong with voting for a black man. Trumpka, a pretty big guy, carries himself with the flair and oratorical drama of a WrestleMania announcer. The speech he's giving here is in front of the United Steelworkers Union. Only one candidate who has earned their vote, and that candidate is Barack Obama, and come November, he's going to be the president of the United States. Trumka himself came from Pennsylvania in this sort of coal mining area, so he really understood um, these kind of voters that were crucial in this election. This is Tim Minchin, the academic who wrote the paper that caught our interest. In the summer of 2008, you, you had about 15.4 million Americans belonging to unions, and about 73% of them were white. Over 11 million of those people were in the AFL-CIO. We caught up with Tim at his home, which is pretty far away from Pennsylvania coal country. You might get some cockatoos. I mean, Australia does have noisy wildlife. Tim was nearly finished writing a book on the AFL-CIO when he heard about this speech. And I thought it was really interesting. Despite the decline in union membership or union density, um, Labour had really been able to retain an important political voice and political power. Unions are the most diverse and biggest organizations in this country. That's Karen Nesbaum, Director of Working America, an AFL-CIO side project that played a role in the 2008 campaign. Uh, People from all different kinds of backgrounds find themselves in workplaces together, you know, voting on their local union's budget and deciding who's going to be president and reading the minutes from the last meeting. It's a, it's a democratic process that's brought down into your life that you engage in with people who are of a different race, a different age, and sometimes a different class. One of the central approaches the AFL-CIO took was to send out a fact sheet to their affiliated unions, trying to set the record straight on the swirl of plainly racist rumors surrounding Obama during the early days of the campaign. Is he a Christian? Yes. Was he sworn in on a Bible? Yes. Was he born in America? Yes. Um, That was followed up with one-on-one meetings between local leaders and workers. The campaign went a step further, asking if people who weren't union members but were within the union member's circle would be as receptive. Working America, the AFL-CIO's affiliate, was set up to speak with that group in particular. Kevin Pape was overseeing field offices in and around Youngstown, Ohio. The area was economically depressed. Many former auto workers, presumably also former union members, were out of a job. Kevin's team canvassed the area, striking up conversations. 
when we got to the point where we were talking about, okay, now we need you to vote for, you know, the black guy with the name that you can't pronounce, um, you know, there, there was that commonality of like, this person's going to make things better. And people would change their mind. People who would say overtly racist things. You could still walk them through a conversation that led them to believe that what was in their best interest was voting for Barack Obama. If someone was coming in and just leading with like, I'm never going to vote for, you know, that N-word, you know, an N-word for president or whatever, then it's like you move on to the next door, right? There's a time and a place for that. But a three-minute conversation on the door about who to vote for is, is probably not it. And how often did they run into that kind of scenario? I mean, I, I'm sorry to ruin the, the narrative here, but it just like, it didn't come up as often as, as you think it, it would, I guess. Exit poll data found that Obama won amongst white men who were union members by 18 points, yet he lost that group in the broader population by 16 points. He also won among union members who were white weekly churchgoers, veterans and gun owners, and among whites who had not graduated from college, yet lost all of those groups in the general population. Again, this is what union works looks like. It's cultural and it's political. Only this time, the intersection of those two things happened to be the biggest election in the country. It was like one of the highest union votes since um, like the 40s or something. Michael Podhauser, a former political strategist for the AFL-CIO, would know. I've done something professional in every federal election cycle since 1976. And that was the only one I was like actually genuinely pleased with what happened. On one hand, only one in nine Americans is part of a union. On the other hand, American presidential election turnout tends to float between 50 and 60 percent. So maybe the unions can push a candidate over the edge. This is a completely subjective question, but do you think Obama would have been elected if it wasn't for the union's efforts? Uh, No, I don't. Without that, I don't think it would have happened. Honestly, there's like no way to say, oh, if it weren't for us, they wouldn't have won. Um, Because just like it was overwhelming, right? After all, Obama's win wasn't meager. He gained one and a half times the electoral votes of his Republican competitor, Mitt Romney. But for the predominantly right-wing effort to dismantle the very concept of unions in America, that's not the point. After the break, you'll hear an interview with some of the people trying to put an end to unions altogether. Well, actually, you won't. More on that in a minute. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. 
It's a fascinating opportunity to speak with someone who's actively engaged in trying to dismantle unions. It's an opportunity we actually had recently. Until a few weeks ago, what you would have heard here would have been an interview with a spokeswoman for an influential anti-union lobby group. A group that has, as their spokesperson told us, freed more than 141,000 public employees from their unions and cost unions some $300 million in dues. She said a lot of stuff like that. But a little while after we conducted that interview, the spokeswoman decided she didn't want anything she said attributed to her. She didn't give a specific reason why. As far as we can tell, she just wanted out. But it's not like she's the only anti-union person in America. The real work of dismantling unions isn't even done by organizations like hers. It's left to politicians and bills. One of those bills has been making its way through the Florida legislature. Here's a real-life example of what it looks like when a union gets gutted. The senator of the 11th district, Senator Ingolia, is recognized to explain the bill. Madam President, this is the bill on unions that we spoke about last week. For the last few months, a bill has been going back and forth in the Florida legislature. Bill 256 seems, on the surface, like a sort of grab bag of requests made to public unions. Raise their membership minimum from 50 to 60%, adjust their payment format, adjust their forms, add regular audits, but not all public sector unions. The police and firefighters were excused from the bill's requirements. The bill's main proponent, Republican Senator Blaise Angolia, said that it was a necessary exclusion to accommodate the difficult hours cops and firefighters keep. Are there amendments? There's a substitute amendment. I'll just read the substitute amendment. Substitute amendment barcode 436266 by Senator Pizzo. Delete lines 120 through 299 and insert amendment. Senator Jason Pizzo, a Democrat, sits on the opposite side of the aisle from Angolia. Senator Pizzo, please explain the substitute amendment. Thank you, Madam President. It's simply to add emergency uh, EMTs, emer- emergency medical technicians. They are like our brave firefighters and law enforcement officers, first responders. They put their lives on the line like other public safety workers. They work around the clock, traveling throughout our streets of Florida and counties and cities to protect the public. And according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the rates on the job injuries and illnesses are and have historically been higher for EMTs than for firefighters, law enforcement, and corrections officers. That is the amendment. Seems reasonable enough, friendly even, to include a group that aligns with the concerns expressed by his Republican colleague. All in favor of the substitute amendment say yay. Yay. All opposed say nay. The amendment is not adopted. Ingolia did not encourage his Republican colleagues to take on the amendment. As you'd expect, during the course of this debate, Democratic senators told stories about the importance of unions, mentioning teachers and public sector unions, their constituents in many cases. My Democratic colleagues have made some excellent points, and I fear and anticipate they will all be discounted with a single word or a single sentence. And every reason that has been given, every motive and motivation behind this bill that I've heard now for five years in a row has been weighed and measured and has been found wanting for nothing else than to be punitive, to be particular, and to single out people. In Florida, the party breakdown in the state house is stark. 28 Republicans, just 12 Democrats. For all their speech making, Pizzo and his colleagues were aware of their chances. 
So this bill will pass today, but I want to be very clear about something. Don't you dare take a dime, a picture with any of these hardworking people ever again on the campaign trail. During the hearing, only one Republican spoke. The bill's drafter, Blaze Angolia. I want to read a portion of an email that was actually sent out today by a union in South Florida. I won't read all of it. I'm just going to read one sentence. It says, we need you to join or recruit other colleagues to become part of our professional organization. The bill has not even been voted on, and it's still having its intended effect. Unions survive on dues, the monthly payments union members make. Because a union bargains for work staff on the whole, non-union members in the public sector have traditionally been required to pay a small contribution just to cover the collective bargaining. That is, unless you live in what's called a right-to-work state, where you're under no obligation to contribute. But in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that non-union workers in the public sector need not pay anything, regardless of whether they were in a right-to-work state or not. For anti-union activists, the ruling, known as Janus, was a huge victory, significantly reducing the union's funding base. For public sector unions, the biggest threat isn't an individual election here or there, but rather a mounting series of new laws designed to undercut their ability to operate. With that, I ask for everybody's favorable support. The secretary will unlock the board and senators will proceed to vote. 23 yeas and 17 nays, Madam President. Show the bill passes. In May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Bill 256. Well, there are multiple things in that bill and all of them taken together can absolutely devastate a a local union. One of the groups affected? Teachers unions. It isn't just the raising of the threshold to 60%, but it's the combination of raising that threshold up to 60% and making it illegal to have the dues deducted through payroll deduction. Nancy Velarde is a longtime English teacher and now oversees her local union in Pinellas County. All of the power of a union is in the membership because it's simply the collective. So if you only have half of those voices, obviously you have half of the power. It's a stark difference from where she started, New York, where union membership and dues range closer to 100%. Here, teacher voice is not as taken seriously, except through the union. That is the only option they have, really, Otherwise, programs are just forced on them willy-nilly. SB 256 isn't the first bill put upon Florida's teachers' unions. It's an extension of a growing list. It started, I would say, really specifically um, impacting collective bargaining 12 or 13 years ago when they initiated the annual contract, which is a way to let a teacher go at the end of each year for no reason. Um, And that goes on for their entire career. So there is no feeling of permanency ever for anybody. This year in Pinellas County, 56 first-year teachers were let go without reason. You know, the district would argue, well, that's not a high percentage when you have 7,000 teachers. That's 56 people that you thought had no potential whatsoever to ever be a good educator 
during an historic teacher shortage. Last year, I believe it was 10,000 vacancies across Florida. It has never been that high. It has never been that high. In 2018, the state issued a bill requiring all public unions to raise their membership above 50% or be decertified. Decertification essentially spells the death of a union. The justification Republican politicians gave? That raising the union membership will actually strengthen a union. But if a union can't reach the goal, it essentially disappears. The last one that was really, really vicious was, I think, two or three years ago. It was a bill that focused on the most experienced teachers, cutting their raises to half of whatever their younger colleagues would receive. We call it the experience tax. You're not valuing the experience, and the experience is what makes you good in a classroom. So how are these strictures affecting teachers? They're just like, I don't care. I don't care if I have to go work in a, in a Walmart or go work and, and bag groceries. I don't care what I have to do. I'm just tired of being disrespected like this. But as teachers leave, Nancy and the rest of the unions will have to convince more and more non-union members to join the union, just in order to survive. The problem is, most of the other 45% understand they're going to get whatever raise I negotiate, whether they pay dues or not. So many people, it's human nature, why should I pay for something that I'm getting for free? Those who don't join the union, or pay union dues, are called free riders a term adopted from economic game theory. Free riders are able to benefit from the efforts paid for by their union colleagues' dues without paying any of themselves. A lot of non-members wanted to make use of my services and my advice, and they would come to me all the time with problems. And I would help them as a colleague and give them advice, but I would always say, I can, I can advise you on what you should or should not do or say, but I can't go in there with you because I don't represent you. I mean... You really need to be a union member so that I can do that for you. To make matters worse, the unions are now also tasked with another consequence of the bill, migrating their members' payments, which for the last 50 years have sat alongside charitable donations, gym memberships, and standard taxes, to whatever method works for the teacher. That means thousands of individual teachers in Nancy's County alone potentially needing to learn new technology or handwrite checks on a monthly basis for a thing they'd likely never needed to think about before. So we're in the process right now of switching all of our current members over to this process because that becomes illegal as of July 1st. To try to get all of those people to switch their method of payment um, has been a big deal. We're about 30% through. It's, It's just... The combination of all those things to make it almost, to make it really difficult to try to get to that 60% by the next, by our next certification date. And when is your next certification date? Sometime in January. We must be at 60% or we could, we risk decertification. Talking to Nancy got me thinking about the spokesperson I told you about earlier, the one who represents the anti-union lobby group and decided she didn't want to be part of this episode anymore. While I won't mention her name, won't even say which organization she represents, I will tell you what she said. When we asked about the Florida bill, specifically the clause stopping auto payments, she acted like it was no big deal, 
No different than if your credit card gets canceled. You just go get a new one. It'll take, what, three minutes? But then she went further, saying that the teachers' unions in general shouldn't be spending their time on policy at all. They should be advocating for kids. And that, quote, they pretend like they care about children, but we know they don't. You know, the last head of the American Federation of Teachers said, when children start paying union dues, that's when I'll care about children, unquote. The person she's talking about is Albert Shanker, a former union head who passed away in 1997. We looked into that quote. It's one that's been attributed to him countless times, and we couldn't find any proof he ever actually said it. Do you think that this bill, SB 256, do you think that it'll have an adverse effect in the long run? I do believe that it will, t- this this bill, because of the combination of the two things, I think we will see some decertified locals. Yes, I do think that some will not be able to make it through. And what happens to those students in terms of what they can expect to receive? We just won't have the bodies to do what we do so well. Um, knowing most of the teachers that I work with, that I've worked with for years, they'll try. They will try their damnedest until they are broken because they just can't keep up with the work. And yet they don't want to stop because they do love what they do and they do care for the kids. SB 256 went into effect July 1st. After the break, a proposed union causes friction between a socially liberal museum and a fiscally conservative museum. It's the same museum. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Let's start with a quick tip for those union avoidance lawyers in need of some help. And this is straight from the pro, Bill Adams. That's the guy you met at the beginning of the episode. The guy who goes around with a gun in his pocket just in case. Still, at least he gets the job done. The unions won 70% of the elections they were involved in last year. In every case, a lawyer is involved virtually every case. And if a lawyer is running the campaign without any outside help from a consultant, they're going to write these beautiful letters to explain things to employees. Well, if you write a three-page treatise on why people should vote against a union, they're not going to read it. So we don't rely on that. We rely on the printed word as proof of a point we're trying to make. And we make that point through PowerPoint, normally. PowerPoint. Got it. 
Um, I really liked the new museum. I'd seen a lot of their shows. In 2016, Dana Kopel started working at the new museum in New York. The new museum, if you're not familiar, is this hip avant-garde institution in the Bowery. On their site is a mea culpa for their role in systemic racism. They've had exhibits with names like Trigger, Gender as a Tool and Weapon. It's a museum that's been forward-looking from the get-go. In a way, that progressive incentive was directed internally, too. Or at least could look that way. In 2018, during the Me Too movement, Dana's director invited her and a number of her female colleagues to a series of empowerment workshops for museum staff. And there was one led by the deputy director, who's also the head of my department, external affairs. There was, it was basically like a lean-in workshop. Like it was um, how to negotiate for higher salaries and find mentorship as a woman in the art world. And it was just wild to all of us in her department. Like most of us, if not all of us, had tried to negotiate raises with her and were completely shut down every time. And so that, I think, was really what So Dana and her colleagues considered starting a union for their staff. None of them had a background in labor relations, but they knew the Museum of Modern Art had a union. Which has been organized since uh, the early 70s. And the steward put me in touch with the president of the local at that time. MoMA was a member of the local UWA, the United Auto Workers, which has acted as a sort of catch-all for more niche trades. Anyhow, Dana meets with MoMA's union president. And I remember they like handed out a sheet of the like MoMA-based salaries. Um, what, what was that like, looking at those numbers? Oh, our jaws dropped. Like, it was almost double for a lot of people, to, like in similar job titles. Having gathered enough other employees, Dana and her colleagues decide to go ahead and start the union. But before having a vote, they'd need to inform their employer, the new museum. We just wrote an email People thought it was spam. Like, at least one person was like, is this spam, like, talking to the IT person? Like, do you know what the deal is? She's like, no, this is your staff. <laughs> and just to be safe, they also wrote the board of the museum. The one res- response that we got from one of the board members was just, who's behind this? Give me their names and job titles. <laughs> Which obviously we didn't do. <laughs> After that email, things get quiet. Dana recalls it being a long weekend. And then I guess we started hearing rumors that they had hired these consultants. Um, It's like almost explicitly right-wing union avoidance consultant, um, which just was completely at odds with, you know, the museum's public-facing politics. Dividing the staff is a pretty standard union avoidance tactic. One of the ways to do this is by employment strata. You convince the staff with upper-level positions that they have to be loyal to their employer in the process separating them from their colleagues further down the ladder. Because I was very visibly very involved, they wanted me out of the union, like, really badly. On its face, Dana's role, senior editor, sounded pretty high up. But she says it didn't give her any responsibility over her colleagues. And she'd never been called a supervisor. Or not until now. First time I was called a supervisor was like, the night, the like evening before when I met with the deputy director and she called me a supervisor like four times in five minutes. Did, did you recognize that as it was happening? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I was like, you know, Karen, I've 
I'm happy to go to this meeting, but I, I don't think I'm a supervisor. Like, do you, are you sure you still want me to be there? And she was like, yes, all my supervisors should be there. And I was like, you know, what do I do? So I went to the meeting, took a lot of notes. <laughs> the meeting. So there wasn't a museum tailored or even like a nonprofit tailored like union avoidance scheme at that point, I don't think. So they sent somebody in um, who to me at least it seemed very clear was like used to trafficking on his relatability as like a like friendly middle-aged white guy and we were a staff of like young women um <laughs> with like generally progressive politics you know the like stories about like oh unions ruined thanksgiving because my like brother-in-law wouldn't stop talking about it and so unions are bad the whole like PowerPoint presentation, I would say, and it really did not land. It was like so clearly to me, like not designed for the staff of a contemporary art museum. To Dana and her colleagues, the PowerPoint, the union avoidance guy, it all felt like a really bad faith effort. We just decided, like, we know they don't care about us as workers. Like, they've made that real clear from the start. Um, But they care about their public image. So Dana, who's an editor, and her colleagues, all of them versed in the industry, reach out to the art world's various news sources. The next day, Dana was asked to meet one-on-one with a union avoidance consultant. I remember it was like I'd spoken to press, maybe on my lunch break or something. And this was in the afternoon, and the thing was about to come out. And I was like, can you hold it? And the press was like, no, now that we've found out this, you know, Artnet found out that Art News had it or vice versa. They were like, we got to publish it. I was like, okay, like publish it. Um, But, you know, I was just like terrified to then like go into this meeting if, you know, and maybe the consultant had found out. And then, yeah, as soon as it was out, I was like, oh no, they can't touch me now. Like I'm protected. The the new museum in, in New York? What about Can you talk at all about that, uh, about that museum? Uh, you talked to an outfit called the New Museum? Yeah, the, the New Museum in New York. I didn't do them, but I did a museum in New York. Which museum did you do in New York? Um, the Guggenheim. And that was not a win. That was a union win. I think for, that might have been our first museum. Or maybe their second. Bill might not have personally overseen the new museum vote, but according to various reports, his company did. In fact, the new museum unionized before the Guggenheim, and like the Guggenheim after it, they won their vote. How do you think your type of work is perceived from from the opposite side of the aisle, so to speak? Oh, they hate us. Unions hate us. They call us union busters, which... I'm not particularly offended by that, Um, but we really don't bust unions. I don't hate unions. Uh, My gosh, I've made a lot of money because of unions. Do you have many friends who are union members? No. Uh, I would uh, love to do the other side of the street. It'd be fun to bust some of these egomaniac uh, executives uh, who are way overpaid for what they do. But the problem is I wouldn't be able to get a good golf game because the union guys don't play the great courses that I play. 
There aren't a lot of union members that are country club members. I mean, understandably. Yeah. Since forming their union, Dana's written a lot about her experience and about labor in the art market generally. It's my shtick now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I, I chose to like stop working in the art world, but I'm very grateful for it. You, you didn't choose. No, yeah, I was laid off. Um, I, you know, I was, I would have stayed at the museum solely for the union as long as like I felt like I needed to. Um, but they just pushed so many of us out as soon as the pandemic hit. It was like, this is carte blanche. We asked the new museum about that, but are yet to get a response. Since being dismissed, Dana's moved to the other side of the country. She's in a PhD program at UCLA, where assistant teachers have joined a familiar union, the United Auto Workers. I was like, I can't get away from this. <laughs> Soon after she arrived, her union went on strike. Yeah, I'm back to the UAW, which is nice. I've got my UAW jacket. I can wear it again. I mean, I didn't stop wearing it, but <laughs> now it's like legit again. The new museum's still an active member of the UAW, too. Other museums have also unionized, cropping up in spaces where, up until recently, workers were without. But it's an oscillating thing. One union shutters over there, someone starts up another one over here. Despite their shrinking numbers, antagonistic law firms, union busters, and all kinds of policies designed to hamstring them, unions are still doing the work they've done for decades. Unlike sand or coffee, they aren't a natural resource. They're concepts built on human aspiration. Some of the big ones that held up this country's middle class might not have the power they once did, but there's a whole new generation of workers at places like Starbucks and Amazon ready to take up the fight. Sure, their tactics might be different, but the goal remains the same. Workers coming together for a fair deal. It's never been easy, but it's not over. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lushik Lotus-Lee. And our associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. I was doing a story in Pittsburgh about the largest employer in Pennsylvania, and they had anti-union screensavers on everybody's computer. I don't know why that, that one pisses me off so much. That one just sounds so malicious.